Hey friends, welcome to Unearthing, our chats with organizers, leaders, and teachers about the powerful tools they've created to build justice. I'm Nico Chin, founder of Up With Community in Lewiston, Maine. We help people learn better together. In season one, called Brass Tacks, I interviewed change makers to understand their achievements and challenges. In this season, Unearthing, it'll be a little different. We're taking pieces of media and mining them for key insights. We'll chat with the creators of these tools to explore why they created them, how they are being used in the world, and how you might use them in your work. You know, our podcast and videos are made possible by our supporters on PayPal and Patreon. I want to take a moment to thank Carol Wishcamper for your support. You can join Carol in broadening the impact of our conversations here. Please consider supporting us on Patreon and getting some cool perks by visiting patreon.com forward slash upwithcommunity or making a one-time donation on PayPal by visiting our site at upwithcommunity.org forward slash support. Let's get into it. For the inaugural episode of our second season, my husband Ben and I will be diving deeper into topics relevant to organizing and organizations how they self-structure, whether and how they adapt to crises, how they scale, why they shrink, and what practices they utilize to carry out their missions, among a lot of other nuanced tidbits of history and learning. Today, we're looking at organizations as living organisms. We hope you enjoy. Welcome. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. How are you doing today? Doing good. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing great. All right. So we're going to be talking today about what it really means to be grassroots and some of the upsides and the downsides of that and the alternatives out there. Um, there's a word people use often called uh, NGOification, you know, which is kind of the bureaucratization of the movement. Um, and, you know, what are some of the upsides and downsides to all these, all these things, just kind of the realities of um being an organization that's trying to take building power seriously but also wants to be nimble and flexible and it seemed like you'd be a great person um to have a conversation with about this because you've seen so many different kinds of groups in your work and we even started doing this as organizers together um so uh so i thought we could actually start with that um some of the work that we we're doing right when we first met and then we'll will sort of anonymize your client experiences and just kind of talk in broad strokes about some of the lessons there. So that all, that all sounds good. Yeah. Sounds great. Okay. All right. So, um, when we, when we actually first met, uh, do you, do you remember what you were presenting on in the firm conference of the fall of 2007, the I fair do. immigration reform movement? What, what I were you, do. what were you presenting on? Well, it was, uh, it was 2007 and I was one of the youngest people in the room and there was this thing called Facebook yep. and blogging. And I was doing a bit of a training on how to start to use these tools in community organizing. And this was before Facebook was on iPhones and stuff, right? So it was not- I don't think iPhones existed. Yeah, yeah. There was yeah. definitely some gray hair people in the room who had just never heard of this thing. And you had some impressive numbers about what you're doing there. And, and what was the text messaging project that you ended up working on? So that came about two years later. So there was very new technology um, that had started in the 2008 presidential election that allowed you to build lists of cell phones and message them simultaneously. And people could sign up to join your list. We take this for granted now, but in 2008, this was really new. And you could sign up to join this list using a six digit code on your phone. 
Um, Obama had become uh, quite notable in the tech world for using this technology. And some of the folks that worked on his campaign just started to make this, this technology available to nonprofits. And so it was early 2009, it was just after the inauguration and we were trying to think about how to mobilize a bunch of immigrants rights leaders and community members all across the country. And we thought, they have cell phones. So yeah. we uh, used one of the technology groups to set up a six digit code, have people come in. We had tens of thousands of people sign up, I mean, within the first 36 hours. And we were using it to drive phone calls into the president's office to make a statement that that the White House should really prioritize immigration reform in their first 100 days. Yeah. And so groups could kind of adapt this tool by just connecting with their local Spanish language radio DJ and announcing that on the air. And then you yeah. could just have, yes, yeah, so say, say, say more about that. Yeah, and organizing groups put it out to their members. We bought ads um, in different papers and we had everything in English and in Spanish. So there were technically two different ways that we were communicating with folks, um, but all driving people to the same actions. Yep. And then eventually we got the technology where you could, and it was still very new back then, where you could call one number and reach any representative in the country by like entering in, you know, information and um, and so then we were driving calls into specific uh, Congress people's offices as well. And prior to this, if I remember correctly, the right wing immigrant rights people were always winning the call Congress war. And the big thing we'd hear from everybody in Congress is all, all the anti immigrant racist people are always shutting down our phone lines. And then all of a sudden with this technology, that that flipped right and our side started drowning them out and I, and probably since then has you know probably been i mean who knows what happened under trump i guess but um that that was like a real shift in in the whole movement when we when there was finally a mass base that was mobilizable for immigration reform and i think what was really critical about this was we didn't just set up the number and then spread it all around we set up relationships so we we and we um, built MOUs, memorandums of understanding, with community-based organizations. That they were the ones connecting with DJs. They were the ones putting out the number, and so then they would get access to the list as a part of promoting it. And we had you know um, notices that let people know how and when their information would be shared. So we were really careful to honor people's privacy within that sharing agreement. But the idea was that we wanted to build the power of local organizations, not just build the power of a national campaign. We wanted to leave behind infrastructure in the communities we were working with. And so we developed these MOUs and had, I mean, we must have had over 30 around the country. Yeah. Okay, this, this is great. Uh, and this leads exactly why I want to talk about this. This is sort of a case study to begin with, because it seems like this is a best of both worlds scenario of the kind of spontaneous social movement-y, you know, the energy of the people just really kind of being unleashed. And then also uh, some real bureaucracy <laughs> that had to make this happen with MOUs and data systems. And I mean, you were like negotiating with cell phone carriers at this time. Cause I think if I remember correctly, like all the Latinx numbers, they were not on like the Verizon and Sprints of the world. There were these more like predatory telecom companies that were primarily the ones, you know, getting people via track phones and stuff like that. So 
I wonder if you could just say a little bit about about that. Like, what what was it like trying to? You worked at a very big organization, Community Change. It's got like probably at least you know like around a hundred or so staff, people, really big budget, a very like an HR department, a very staid organization. But then you also are connecting with very small grassroots groups in like a really big movement moment. You know where just a year or two ago, there had literally been millions of people on the street. So could you talk a little bit about what it was like kind of navigating those? Sure. Um, You know, we, well, and to really put it, we were working with a tech startup and several tech startups. We were working with multinational cell phone companies and we were working with uh, a DC-based nonprofit community change and then grassroots-based organizations. So that was really all of the relationships that we were negotiating. And we just brought a community organizer sensibility, right? So we said, what are people's self-interests? When we have to go to Cricket and say, which is a cell phone carrier, like, please accept the six-digit code. Please let your people opt into this. Um, some of the plans didn't originally allow for it. And it was, well, why do you want to do this? To keep them on your cell phone carrier, right? Um, We want to not just build our own power. We want to build community power. So we're navigating the MOUs. Um, And we want the individual user to feel a sense of power, right? So when we're sending these text messages, we, we had to really start learning the ropes of there's a human being behind this text message. We're going to share our name. Right, we're going to ask you to take an action on something that we know you care about. We're not buying numbers from someone else and then blast messaging you, right? Or we're not just trying to extract data from you. We're trying to give you an opportunity to exercise your power. And so we were really looking at these four different levels of power that we talk a lot about in equity work, systemic, institutional, interpersonal, and internal, and really thinking about how do we optimize people's access and and experience of power, increasing their ability to act for something they care about. Okay, so many questions here. And I I do want to move on other things too, but I think this is such a good way to start. So first of all, how do you get the number of somebody at Cricket to you, you guys say, hey, I want your product to do this thing that it doesn't do and my name is Nicola and I'm like, what, how, how many years old? And no, like, no, where, no. where do you I find these numbers? I wasn't the one negotiating that. I wasn't the one negotiating that. No, no. Okay. No. So how did, how did that work? Well, you know, so every, I think the best ideas scaffold when you treat them like a sixth grade science experiment, right? So you take an idea, you say, I think this could work. I'm not sure. Let's do an experiment. So the first experiment was probably me, my boss, one other person on our board, designing it, running it and saying, okay, can we get these three or four groups to sign people up and then see how it works, right? Um, that way we can tweak it and say, did people like that message? Did they not like that message? Did We, we would send out sometimes two different messages. So you, we scaled up before we're doing something more complex like working with a cell phone company, right? After that initial experiment, we started to build the team out. And so eventually we had people that were dedicated just to this team. And that's when I started to step off because I wasn't a technology expert, but it was really, um, I mean, you, you, you use community organizing. Who do you know? Who do you know? Who do you know? Who do you know? You know, you're talking to a funder who has relationships with the telephone industry. <laughs> you're calling the public number to ask, you know, like, who can I talk to someone else? You know, um, one of the best lessons I got as a community organizer was you find your yes. 
mm -hmm. to find your yes. And so it's an order of operations. You may get three no's from the first three places you try, but when you're committed to experimentation and a hypothesis of this is an idea that could really help people, you're going to keep climbing that tree until you get that connection. Yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't by any means me. It was about building a team and we knew who we needed on our team after we did that initial experiment. Great. Okay. We, oh, we need this type of expertise or that type of expertise. So is it fair to say that an advantage to doing this through community change was that it sort of allowed you to have a network of relationships that you could start to tap when you were like, oh, we got to solve these problems. Okay you can hustle these two or three people and they, yeah, this institute was sort of supporting you doing that. And then also, I mean, it sounds like that all cost money to like get new staff on this. And so pretty quickly, this thing that you and Rich Stoltz, who's at One America now. It's actually um, Marissa, it's actually Marissa. Gardner. Oh, it's Marissa. Oh, 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 okay, okay. So so Marissa, who's at Planned Parenthood now? No, where, where is she at? She is, uh, I think she's doing freelancing right now. Okay, all right, cool. Well, anyway, you're still out there doing doing good work in the movement. You all had like some, some kind of budget. I mean, do you have any sense of how much money it costs to scale that up? I don't remember anymore. I mean, this was back in 2009. And once it got to that level of scaling, I wasn't as involved, um, but it was in the order of magnitude of, of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Because there were some people who were brought on and like they were, on a comps team where this is the biggest part of their job. Right. And you had to pay for the technology. I mean, to yes. be able to yes. have a list of hundreds of thousands of people required servers, required tech management, in addition to the staff that we had to have internally. Okay. Okay. So that's great. So some big institutions, there's sets of relationships and resources to make that happen. Tell me more about disadvantages. Were there any points in this process where there were movement leaders that were just like, I wanted to, to do this and it can't, or, um, you know, host organization having some set of interests that was like, well, that's a little sketch. We kind of want the project to go this way because we've got an institutional interest and other people don't. Um, were there any, were there any challenges like that to the, to the project? I mean, I think we can talk about the challenges of lots of different NGOification. I think specific to this project, it, it probably ended in an arc that is similar to a lot of, of projects that go from experimentation to startup to now we're just like a really big thing. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think um, when it becomes a really big thing, the connection to community, the connection to that original MOU that's driving people to join, that's driving people to, to, to pay attention, starts to weaken, it starts to loosen. So your response rate goes down, right? Or your, um, your new signups start to go down. How do you keep it fresh? How do you keep the relationship going? I actually think the Movement for Black Lives text message ch chain right now is one of the best ones I'm on. Mm -hmm. You know, pretty much all the other ones that I'm on just keep asking me to volunteer for things. And I don't even know who the people are. And it's, yeah. you know, really random, but the movement for back lives, they're like sending me interesting updates about events I want to come to. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's and really, really long too. Right. Like when I yeah, click on them, they're like two full screen lengths and it's like, Hey family. And it's like this. And I want to read all of it. Yeah, and I want to yeah. read all of it because it's really quality, right? Like it's really connected into something I'm interested in, into something I care about. And that really, um, that's hard to maintain over a long period of time. That's hard to maintain when you reach a certain size. 
Um, you know, I would also say the politics of the issue changed, right? So in that 2009, we thought maybe we have a chance. You know, by the end of 2009, early 2010, it was clear that immigration was not Obama's top priority. And so the momentum in the field had really shifted as well. Um, I think we were able to continue using the technology for that integration of healthcare and immigration work that we were doing. And that was really valuable. There were some really important wins on that in the healthcare fight um, that were led by really incredible leaders. Um, I was not a part of any, you know, kind of tensions on that particular project between national and local groups um, mm -hmm. that can certainly speak to other experiences of that tension. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's start to go there. Um, and just to kind of draw out that last point as a way to transition. Um, I think that there, there's a very interesting lesson there on the tactic worked because it was so new and so fresh and it was a thing that nobody else was doing. And then it was very easy for to like kind of perfect it and like make it smoother and more institutionally perfect. But by the time that that had all happened, then everybody else can do it. And then it isn't as fresh and it doesn't work as well. And so there's this question. So, so that, that kind of leads me to this question of like, if you're a big institution trying to reconcile these things, how do you keep generating ideas like that so you've got these younger staff, because because how old were you when when you were doing this? Probably 24, 25. Okay, yeah. So so it's like, how do you keep having staff in their earlier mid twenties who are fluent on these technologies or or relationships or or just whatever that are like generating ideas? And obviously, not every single idea that you know a young person is going to come up with is going to you know immediately transform a national issue. But a lot of them are right, and they're and they're worth doing. And so sorting through that seems seems challenging. Um, and so let's maybe kind of parlay that into some of your other broader work and we can we can get into some of your clients there. Um, and maybe, uh, yeah, maybe first, uh, as we do that, do you want to give a sense of just the breadth of the kind of folks that you work with? Um, like if you were to just sort of describe, here are all the kinds of clients that, that you do consulting with? What, what would be some of the kinds of groups that are out there? Yeah, I'm happy to go there. I did have an answer to your question. By oh, the way. okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Answer it. Go for, go for it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and I'd like to focus less on my clients and more just like the breadth of organizations that I've connected with over the course of my career. Sure. Um, so really looking at about, you know, 17, 18 years worth of relationships, conversations from volunteering to staffing to, to people I work with now, rather than just focusing on clients. Um, so, you know, there were any, in your question about how do you help innovation keep staying alive is deeply connected to how do you maintain the quality of relationship in your community organizing? When we think about community organizing, the heartbeat of it is the quality of relationship we build that is in opposition to the type of relationships that our unjust society fosters, right? So if we're treated in a transactional nature, if we're, if we're discounted because of our identity, if we're marginalized, if we're exploited, if we're looked at as less than, we are in community organizing, we are building relationships that are the opposite of that, right? And it takes time, it takes care, it takes energy. That is really the heart of how I think you continue to maintain innovation. 
within a grassroots organizing context. So one of the pieces that was key is the reason I got a chance to do that was because my boss and I had a relationship where she really listened deeply to my ideas and mm. I really respected her wisdom. And so we had a pre-existing relationship of trust where I could say an idea, she could give me some, some guardrails she, and that I could take and then run with, right? It wasn't just like, I got to do whatever I want because I'm fancy, right? But it also wasn't your idea sucks, go do something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, yeah. let's do an experiment. Let's give you that. And, and that was made possible because of the quality of relationship that we engaged in within that organization. So, so can we pause on that? Don't, don't forget what you're going to say next, but just, just to pause on that a little bit. Can you remember anything that Marissa did to kind of signal to you, I like your, I, I want you to be creative. I don't want you to just wake up in the morning, just do everything that I tell you to do. I want you to have ideas and brainstorm and come to me with interesting stuff. Like how did she set the tone for that with you? Yeah. It wasn't a specific message. Like, I don't know if she ever said that to me, right? Like, I don't know if she would have ever even thought to say that to me, but I think there were a few key things of daily practices right? Like she expected me to manage my work plan, which sometimes was a pain in the butt, but it also set me up to have the skills I needed to come up with an idea, right? So I, I, I knew I reported to her, but I also knew the expectation of what it meant to run my own business in the small B sense, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. in the sense of like, she's checking in, she's giving me advice, you know, she's making sure I'm on track, but at the end of the day, I'm responsible for myself, right? And so that is already putting me in the relationship of like my ideas matter and how do I relate to myself in a way that allows me to do ideas? I think another regular practice that we had was she asked me questions, mm-hmm. you know, and I didn't always know the answers. You know, sometimes she'd say like, what'd you think of what this person said in that meeting? Or what did you think yeah. of how that went down? And, you know, at first I would think, why is this person who's so much more experienced than me asking me this question? And I don't know what to say. And then after I got over that initial piece, I understood like we're having a conversation and like she's genuinely interested. And so that created that dialogue of like, sure, there are things that she knows that I don't know. And she is genuinely interested in my perspective. And so that there's a relationship of co-creation there, right? We're not blurring the lines. We're not flat right? But there's respect. And, and it was a respect that I think I, I have, have rarely received from people who did not share my identity, right? So she is a woman of color. We both identify as Asian. And with a lot of other people I've engaged with in my career, that quality of connection wasn't there. It, it was either, here's this woman of color I need to preen, or I need to improve, or here's what she's lacking, or here's this woman of color that I need to control, or who is out of bounds, or is too emotional. So a lot of people early on in my career related to me in trying to improve me. <laughs> and I think Marissa was just like, oh, you're cool. Yeah, you have some stuff to learn. And like, you bring something to the table, like, let's just relate to people as human beings. Yeah, I, I love that. And, and I do want to get back to this original tree that you're starting, but, but just to, I mean, I feel like that connects so directly with what you're saying about that community organizing spirit where community organizers don't go out in the world looking for like, Oh, well, or at least they shouldn't go out there looking like, Oh, well, here are like the 16 ways you're messed up. Like, let's focus on that. It's like, Oh man, here are the sparks. Here's that little ember that I can nurture. And this really cool thing about this person that I want to 
focus on and build up and all those other things are they'll they'll kind of it's this faith that they will kind of um take care of themselves as a person grows and develops and is worth is worth nurturing yeah yeah and you know the second piece about nurturing relationship to support innovation in grassroots work was really a commitment to continuous learning and training so as soon as i started to learn these tools within a year i'm starting to try to train people Right. And as we're training people, we actually created this uh, document because I don't even know if Google Docs existed back then. <laughs> but we created this what we called the offline guide. And it was online, offline organizing. That was just a way to, to take all of the cool stuff people were learning around the country and then share it back out to others. And so as there were new ideas that came in, we created another chapter and then we'd send it out. And so we started to create these monthly gatherings of all of the new social media hires from the grassroots organizations and we were like a bit of a brain trust and we were sharing those those commitments you know sometimes in community organizing we start to codify a curriculum that then becomes old and stale mm -hmm. but then becomes put up at a pedestal that can't be questioned and so then instead of seeing people as agents of their own learning we see them as empty vessels we have to pour our three-day training into right and so yeah. yeah and so what we were doing in the social media space was we never had a three-day training but we were constantly learning with each other we were having ways to like source that information and then spit it back out and keep learning with each other right and again the basis of that relationship was no one was trying to improve each other to become the best communications person right we were all just trying to be our version of the best communications organizer yeah. So we could be lots of different versions. Uh, that's so deep because I feel, and I think it gets a little bit to the heart of this question of what it, what it really means to be grassroots because the, even like people, <laughs> there's like three day organizing trainings that really haven't changed in decades. Right. And it's just like, this is the formula. We know it come here for three days. We will teach it to you. And even if it's run by, you know, a quote unquote, like small grassroots organization, that's so interesting that that doesn't, it violates that first principle that you're talking about around feeling like everybody's got something to learn from other people. Everybody's got inherent worth. We're not here to like make anybody better because they're like really these flawed, messed up people. Um, so there's something always a little bit rough about the products because you can never quite put that pretty branding on it and market it out to whatever in, in this, you know, in that kind of non grassroots sense, there's always this, like, it's always more of a word doc or a saved PDF and not like the fancy thing on the website. If, if I'm hearing you correctly. I think to really honor, uh, again, creating a quality of relationship that is different than the quality of relationship our oppressive society currently creates. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, this is good. This is actually going even better than I thought it would be. So let me let me just throw you some some uh, some questions about this topic. Uh, one of them would be, I'd love it if you could speak to the disadvantages, particularly for people of color uh, or women, you know, women or low income people, working class people, at being at a small, like one or two person shop. And the reason why I'm at, which I was that? for many years, which I was yeah, for many yeah, years. Yeah, right. And, and the reason why I'm asking this is I think there's a lot of funders out there in the grassroots space 
that put these limits on like, you know, if you, if your organization has more than $5 in its bank account, you can't apply to us because we just want to do the grassroots stuff. And they think they're doing a favor to low-income folks and folks coming from disadvantaged backgrounds because small is beautiful. And if only we just had a million more one staff person organizations, then we would, you know, all have the power we need to win. And, um, and, and, and feel free to push back on this if you think this isn't true and there aren't disadvantages to that strategy. But, but I'm asking that because I feel like I've, I've certainly seen in, in my work um, real problems that folks of particularly of color get, up, get set up for failure if they're not in a supportive institutional context. So yeah, wondering, wondering if you could speak to that. So I think to answer this question, uh, and just to, to reground in the question, because my brain was going in 10 different directions when you we were talking is like, what are some of the core dynamics and tensions for people of non-dominant identities in one to two or three person organizations, particularly in their relationship with funders who may glorify, exotify the fact that they are small, right? Um, and, and then really miss some important elements of their, their growth. So I think to answer that question, first, we have to have a shared understanding of like the economy and the marketplace of nonprofits, right? So we start with an understanding of the waves of development of nonprofits, right? So we go back to the initial tax codes that set up nonprofits and foundations. We're about protecting white people's money from the government. We're about giving white people more control over the social sector, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and there were times where it was then also about um, particularly white women accessing that system as a way to exercise their power, helping people along the way, right? But, but also really embedding within the funding relationship within the nonprofit structure, a logic that the center of our economy is capitalism and this is the non-center that the government is here for certain things and not other things. And that certain things outside of the government get to be decided on by white people, by men, or by people of a certain class or upper class and cis and able-bodied. So then you come to today and you have people who are living in the present moment without understanding this history or without thinking critically about the economy and they just want to do something good. Are you talking about the nonprofit staff right now or the funders or both. both? Okay. I'll talk about both. So funders say corporate power, scale of big, that's how people get hurt. Small is where people don't get hurt. So let's invest a lot in small because that way it'll be protected. It'll be safe. It'll be, it'll be theirs, right? We don't even realize we're saying that, right? We're saying, oh, look at this great work. We think they're awesome. Like, let's lift them up, right? But we don't ask, how can we fund you to fund your retirement? How can we fund you so all of your staff can pay for their childcare and take home a living wage, right? We're, we're not asking all of these questions because we're not even thinking about it. We're so engaged in our own internal view of, well, let's just not do this big, scary thing over here. Let's do this fun, you know, like empowering, inspiring, small thing over here. And as a person of color trying to work in this system where there are these larger nonprofits that are clearly oppressing and exploiting our, our communities, we say, you know what, if I could just 
I could just build this world right here. Mm-hmm. And then I could scale this model, right? Mm-hmm. That is working at this institutional and interpersonal level that misses some structural analyses of how our economy and our tax laws are, <laughs> are created to really keep us trapped. And so what, what I think are some of the tensions, if we look at that history, is you have to say to yourself, okay, if this is a system that is designed to keep me small, how is that impacting my mission that I want to touch lots of different people? Now, there are some organizations that are one, two, three staff people today that want to stay one, two, three staff people. They're helping a specific neighborhood or they're helping a specific community and they don't want to, they don't want to grow. So I want to just honor like that is a useful and valuable and valid thing. And if we had an economy that allowed us to have lots of two and three person organizations that then pulled their HR, that then pulled their accounting, that then pulled their insurance, we could have lots of small groups flourish But we actually have this place where we're pitting all of these small groups against each other, making them replicate a lot of overhead. And we're actually not saying to ourselves, how do we fully fund the spirit and energy of these two and three person groups so that they can pay for childcare, so that they can pay for retirement, so that their salaries can grow with the COLA every year, right? Yep. So it's a false thing to say small is better than big, or big is always bad, right? What we actually have is a system that disconnects people from their power and silos them and sets us up for disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think concretely a way that you, like a challenge I've seen a lot with um, like sort of founders of color with small groups is that when you're that first staff person, uh, because the system is designed to keep you small, the way you talked about, like the way that manifests itself is you're expected to know everything about fundraising, everything about the admin backend, and do all the program, which are just so many different skill sets that it really does take someone like a decade or so to gain really baseline competency in all those different things, particularly if in their, they're in that competitive environment that you're talking about. And it's just so, it, to my mind, it's just so unrealistic to expect people to do that right off the bat when they're first starting off for this all the time. And then, you know, and then making like successive funding sort of contingent on them being successful there. And it's not just that. We also then expect them to raise children yeah. in a society that's not set up for them. We also expect them to take care of ailing or sick family members in a, in a healthcare system that is like organized around their destruction. Like, and, and, and foundations in particular, even if they're, if they're like small is beautiful, they see people as workers. They don't see them with the richness of the community organizing relationship that the groups are organized to create. And so one of the dynamics I see over and over again in the work is a historically predominantly white led funder or NGO that wants to work with a small grassroots group is like, I'll work with you as long as my definition of relationship is the basis of our relationship. I don't get curious about how you relate to people or how you think about power differently. I'm giving you lots of money or I'm giving you lots of access and isn't that so generous of me, right? And this is where having a structural analysis of equity or structural analysis of power and the economy has a step back from the individual or institutional choices we make that look positive 
and hold ourselves accountable to a systemic impact that we're having for people. Just to make sure I got, because the individual choice that looks positive is, aren't we so nice giving you small group money? And the thing that we're reinforcing that's bad, that's systemic is the terms of that money are you got to operate in this very transactional specific way that is us trying to fix you and not really honoring the spark that's in you that's just inherently good that we're interested in nurturing together and learning from each other on is that right right? and and yeah and in true colonial fashion right the sector has allowed for areas of alternatives right so oh you want to do like you want to do restorative practices like let's give you a mini grant for that or oh you you don't want to have an executive director you want to have like a co-director model like we'll give you uh, a year of general operating support to help you explore explore that right but at the core of it is still this logic of this person is needy and this person needs me or needs us and as long as you see people as always being needy you're always in a relationship of they need you you're not actually saying what would I do in relationship to this person to allow them to fully flourish without my guidance, without my strings attached? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's another nice consequence of people not being broken and in need of fixing is that creativity is itself powerful and recognizing that, yeah, we're actually on equal footing here. We we do have some money. We do have some of these other advantages, but they actually have all these other things too. And wow, that's we got to really got to really see eye to eye because we're 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 actually like it's not just a nice thing to treat people as peers that is true in fact like the fact is we actually are peers neither of us can get what we want without the other and so establishing mutuality it's not this benevolent aren't we so proper thing it's like that is just the reality of the situation that's worth recognizing and to do this then it's like people don't unintentionally recreate oppressive societies because they suck for the most part. It's because we're these biological human beings in a society telling us these people are needy or these people are small or this is the way to to relate to each other. And so what I often try to tell people is it's not about going to an equity training, learning a bunch of things and then putting in your strategic plan. It's about having a daily practice of cleansing oppression from yourself and digesting what you want to be putting out into the world, right? So like, I have to read, I have to talk, I have to eat, I have to move my body in ways that are, that reflect what I want to put back out into the world. And then I have to do things that allow me to move all of those oppressive messages out of my energy, right? Because I still walk into a meeting and say, I got to be perfect. I got to be on my A game. I got to do this. Yeah. Okay. So all right, so I, I, want, I want to move to the things that smaller groups tend to do better than, than bigger groups in a, in a second year, but, but could you just kind of close us on this by giving an example of whether it's in philanthropy, like somebody moving resources to a group, or just like an organizer talking to a volunteer, or a supervisor talking to you know, a direct report, how do you do that daily practice? Like what's a concrete example of that so that you are checking your desire to be perfect and controlling and seeing people as flawed and needing fixing because we live in this horrible, crazy, unstable world. And then actually like approaching that with um, confidence and trust 
and really interested in mutual creativity and just kind of seeing this person is like, I, this is somebody I can really learn from. And we're actually equals here, even if outwardly it sort of looks like, um, even if outwardly it might, might look like that's not the case. Yeah. So the tool that I've been using and practicing this is a tool called Color Brave Space that I licensed from a multiracial facilitation team called Equity Matters. And they have a new 2.0 version out. There's a blog post that, that folks can see about this. And um, essentially it, it, it has a few core components. There's a daily practice of putting relationships first while staying centered on our common goal. So it's like a little... Is it like a journal or something that you write saying like no, it's a set of practices. It's a set okay. of practices that you do. They created it for meetings and I really think you can use it as a set of daily practices. So putting relationship first while staying focused on our common goal, noticing power dynamics and analyzing bias systems, being kind and brave, looking for learning. I gave you a shorter version of this. Okay. So what this means is, you know, I'm sitting with someone and, um, you know, I think we should do X and they think we should do Y. And we're having this conversation back and forth and, and we pause and we say, Hey, I, I'm going to look for my learning here. What don't I understand about what you're bringing to the table? Oh, I'm going to look for my learning here. What don't I understand about what you're bringing to the table? Oh, Hey, what else is going on for me today? That is making this conversation hard. I'm leaning into relationship, right? I'm looking for learning, I'm leading into relationship. Maybe I need to do this at a different time, or maybe I need to ask you for something different in this conversation that could really ground us together. Staying focused on our common goal. Here's how I think my recommendation is gonna get us there. How do you think your recommendation is gonna get us there? Oh, wait a minute, we actually have different goals. Let's talk about why we have different goals and how we get onto the same goal. So there's mm -hmm, a set of practices mm -hmm. that really call us into learning, analyzing, seeing the person in front of us instead of what do I need to get done? How do I need to be efficient? What is the gold star? I, yeah, I really like it. And, you know, er, earlier you talked about um, asking earnest, open-ended questions where you really just genuinely don't have the answer. And I, I feel like there was a time where I was sort of thinking about coaching questions as like, you sort of have the thing already decided that you're trying to get that person to realize. And you're kind of you're like a Socratic philosopher, like forcing them through this reasoning process to get to where you're going. And so to be clear, you're like, if I'm just going to kind of be crass about reducing those practices, it's like a lot of that is just asking those genuine questions where you don't have a predetermined answer. It's just like, oh, wow. Okay. All right. There's a little bit of disconnect here. Let me just ask some very basic questions to make sure I really understand the situation. What's going on in that person's head and, and that uh, in doing that, you kind of telegraph the, yep, we're all here to learn together. This isn't a transactional top-down, I'm gonna boss you around kind of situation. It's like, we're gonna, we're gonna figure this problem out by doing it together. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Yep. Yeah. All right, that's, that's awesome. Um, I wonder if we can transition and if you'd be willing to share a story of a time where you either saw like a smaller kind of gritty hustling kind of group, just do something that you're like, wow, I know organizations that are many times bigger than this organization who could not pull that off. Right. Or, or kind of the flip of that, like a large organization just really kind of fumbling its way and not being able to do something that a smaller group really could. Um, and, and I'm asking that because I feel like, um, 
there's a tendency for us to think that, oh yeah, you know, the answer to everything is scale. And if we just had more people and more resources, we would by definition be more powerful and more effective. But in my experience, at least it actually seems like that's not the case. Right. So, right. And one of the things that I try to get people on uh, off of is the pendulum of scale is good or scale is bad, right? Like it's actually not about is scaling good or is scaling bad. It's about what is most useful. And I think where you find uh, smaller organizations really being effective is they fundamentally in many ways have less to lose. So can take bigger risks but they also are not asking themselves, what is the fancy thing that protects me? They're asking, or that someone else will think is cool or valid. They're asking themselves, what's his most useful? And it's, if you can stay in that question of what is most useful, not what is right, what is wrong, what is big, what is that funder think is interesting, you actually just get better answers, right? Mm -hmm. And so my favorite example of that is I'll talk every day, every day, all day, every day about how much I love Main Transnet. Mm -hmm. You know, um, this is a group of people who are not trained as, as trainers or professional, whatever curriculum designers. And I went to one of their first, one of their 101, um, trans justice, gender justice trainings. And I was like, I could set this next to anything I've seen nationally. And it's, it's absolutely amazing. Right. Yep. But not only are they able to design this beautiful curriculum that reflects the knowledge and wisdom of their community, they're like creating thrift stores and they're like creating healthcare services where they didn't exist for their community. And it's just like, you know, there are healthcare systems that have or haven't actually wanted to provide, but let's say for, for, for argument's sake that have wanted to provide services for these communities that haven't figured it out for years. And this organization is doing it because they're not asking, they're not starting from the point of this is the way it has to be. How do I make it work? They're starting from the place of this is what we need. What is the most useful thing to get us there, right? And, and a book that I really, uh, that I heard an interview with that I thought was really good that I think describes why big groups fumble so much mm -hmm. is called Moonshot. And okay. it talks about why when human beings start to get a part of bigger organizations and they essentially have a higher salary, have a bigger reputation and then feel committed to maintaining their social status. They stop looking for innovation and utility and they start looking for what's going to maintain their social status and they don't even realize they're doing it. What's an example of maintaining social status? Because I think everybody would be like, oh yeah, that sounds bad, but it's kind of right. hard to imagine. <laughs> when, when would you do that? So what it means is, okay, so we all work at this big nonprofit, healthcare nonprofit, and we want to create a program to serve uh, trans communities healthcare. Who's going to do it? Who's going to take it on? Well, I'm a mid-level manager and I want to get to be a senior manager. And that program is probably going to have a lot of failure or probably going to have a lot of problems. I don't want to take that on. I'm trying to climb the ladder. So then someone who may be a little less talented or a little less prepared is like, sure, I'll take it on. You know what I mean? Or like, yeah. or, or, you know, it's like to, in order to serve this community, well, we have to ask the healthcare provider or the insurance provider to do something differently. Well, I have been working with that insurance provider for 10 years and I don't want to risk my relationship with them to try to negotiate this on behalf of a small community, <laughs> right? Yep. Um, and so I'm just not willing to spend my social capital with someone else that I would need to in order to offer that service in a better way to that community. Again, these are largely subconscious decisions. Yeah. These aren't people sitting back and saying, I need to maintain my status, my reputation, my hierarchy. 
it's actually just this once you've started trying to climb a ladder, you don't even realize you have the choice to stop and you don't see the collateral damage of those choices because you are just doing the thing that you need to do right now. Yeah, that really resonates with me. It, it reminds me of um, Nicholas Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, because he talks a lot about how, um, you know, if you just stay in the safe investments, just to like use like a financial metaphor, like that all that will work great for like 20, 30 years, but then invariably some big black swan event will come along, some big event that nobody anticipated. And then everything that seems safe is just totally useless. It's totally disrupted. Your whole model falls apart. And if you haven't had the discipline to do these little experiments, like you've been talking about the whole time, just trying new things, trying new things, trying new things. And you're never putting so much in there that when they fail, it like is a threat to your whole organization. But those are the things that become the safe investments in the long run and become the things that allow you to shift to a new model when your existing model inevitably fails. And I can definitely say as, as somebody who's in that mid-level spot a lot, it's like, yeah, that I, it, it takes real self-discipline to go out and like want to risk and try new things because yeah, if, if you're around for a while in an organization, you can just, you know, you, you obviously got promoted or whatever, cause you did a couple things well. So why not just keep doing those few things well and learn nothing new, <laughs> you know, for another 10 years. And I don't want to hide the ball, right? Like, are there people that make crappy decisions at big organizations for malicious reasons or for selfish yeah. reasons intentionally? Sure. Like, I just find that in this conversation, that's much less interesting, right? Like that happens. There are going to be those things. What I have really kind of committed my whole career to is how do well-meaning, well-intentioned people just make really unuseful decisions? Mm-hmm. And how do they backtrack from the things that are actually keep them tied to the very thing they say they don't want? Yeah, I love that. And, and I think that that practice goes right back to those kind of earnest questions you were talking about. Because if, uh, if you're sending people this message, I'm really interested in what you're thinking about and what you're wrestling with, they'll, they'll feel <laughs> more comfortable taking risks and trying out new things because you'll be sending that signal that that's okay. But if, yeah. If you're just, yeah, I'm just interested in the two or three things that you do well, and that's all we ever talk about and just say, hey, great, then yeah, probably probably not. And that well-intentioned just kind of, yeah, goes sideways. What would you say your definition of grassroots is? I really think about the decision-making structure and the relationship to the community being served by that decision-making structure. So for me, if the people most directly impacted by the decisions of the organization